Hi, I'm Hugh Richards, Head of Digital Investment Banking at JP Morgan and the host of our podcast series, What's the Deal? Each episode, I'm going to be joined by global business and industry leaders to look at the trends driving deal-making today and how they are transforming businesses and industries the world over. In today's episode, we'll be sharing our experts' perspective on Brexit, the UK's separation from the European Union. It's certainly an understatement to say that the tumultuous four-year road to Brexit has been extensively discussed. So today, we're going to focus on navigating the path forward as the resulting policy, economic, and political trends are coming into focus. To discuss what a post-Brexit world looks like, I'm joined by two of my colleagues who, given their background in finance and roles in government, have unique perspectives to add to the discussion. Here with me is Vittorio Grilli, JP Morgan's chairman of Italy and the corporate and investment bank in EMEA. Prior to joining the firm, Vittorio held various positions at the Italian Treasury. Also joining us is the Right Honourable Sajid Javid MP, a British Member of Parliament and former Chancellor of the Exchequer of the United Kingdom. Before pursuing a career in public service, Sajid worked in banking and actually started his career here with us at J.P. Morgan Chase. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for being here with me. Thank you. Thank you. Terrific. Well, we'll just dive right in here with some questions that I know are on everybody's minds. No one could really have anticipated that a global pandemic would have occurred during Brexit's final negotiations and transition. And as a result, it's been quite tricky to differentiate the impact of COVID-19 from other factors that have been impacting economies overall. So from your individual perspectives, how are you currently assessing the economic impact of Brexit specifically on the UK and EU's economies? I think that it's fair to say that the economy has shown a lot of resilience all across the globe, but the damage has been extensive. And I think that moving forward, and the most important thing is that we restore confidence in our own population. And I think here we see a lot of difference across the globe once again. A lot will depend on how fast we can achieve herd immunity through vaccination. Unfortunately, continental Europe is behind the curve right now. For that reason, I am reasonably preoccupied for the state of the economy in the EU. And if you just compare to the UK, US or Israel, you can see a tremendous difference. And that means that our contagion curve is not declining in a sufficient fast mode to restore the economic health in our system. Vittorio, before we go to Sajid for his perspective on the UK, I want to go back to your comments on vaccination rates in Europe. Given the European Union's extensive nationalized healthcare system, one would have thought that the pace of vaccination would have been higher. Do you see any catalyst to increase the vaccination rates? Well, as you rightly said, we have several different countries, each one with its own system, and that doesn't help. But we have a centralized procurement system to purchase the vaccine doses. And that is, to me, the turning point. Clearly, the logistic of uh, delivering the vaccination is complex. The big difference to me compared to US, UK and Israel is having enough doses to deliver en masse the vaccine. As soon as we have clarity of what are the vaccine that we are using and we have enough doses, we don't get that kind of acceleration that we all hope. Terrific. Makes a lot of sense. So Sajid, from the UK perspective, how are you seeing the economy shaping up there? Well, you're quite right at the start when you said about you know, this pandemic obviously has changed everything and has drowned out news on pretty much everything else. Of course, Brexit has 
happened sort of properly, as it were, during the pandemic, because we've left the transition period, entered this new deal. But a lot of the news around Brexit is still being overtaken around the pandemic. But with Brexit itself, and you talk about the economic impact, in some ways, I think it's only just begun. It has helped already in the sense that at least there's now certainty. People might not like certain aspects of the deal. They might prefer others and so forth. But the point is, there now is a deal and businesses can plan on that basis and having that certainty. And then with the deal itself, as Boris Johnson said, from the moment he first became prime minister, that he was going to go for this sort of so-called Canada-style deal focused on goods. And that's exactly what's been delivered. We are seeing reports of whether it's some British companies, companies in the EU, having some issues around import-export. I think to a large extent, many of these will be sort of, let's call them teething problems as both sides It's worth remembering it's not just British firms that need to get used to the new rules, but also an importer or an exporter, for example, in Italy will have to file more paperwork and potentially customs implications that weren't there before. So both sides are getting used to it. And I think that will, over time, probably quite quickly smooth out. But I would just distinguish the situation in Northern Ireland, where, as you will know, there's a different arrangement. And that will mean that whatever happens in the rest of the UK with respect to the deal in Northern Ireland, there'll probably be a different pathway to some extent. And then I just wanted to touch on the vaccine issue. I think it's also true, though, that the reason the UK took a different path was that Brexit just meant a change in mindset. And that mindset pre-Brexit would have been very much, let's sort of just follow the EU way of doing things. And now the default position in the UK has very much been that we will go our own way on something as important as a vaccine, unless there was an override reason not to. And that has obviously paid off massively, as Victoria has just talked about. And so when we talk about the economic impact of Brexit, whilst the vaccine in the first instance is all about public health, as Victoria has rightly linked it, is also very much part about economic recovery. And so in some way, you could say that Brexit has helped the UK with its vaccine delivery hugely. And it's meant a what is hopefully going to be a quicker economic recovery than otherwise. To me, right now, for the EU, the Brexit issue for the population at large is not on the radar screen. They are so much preoccupied by the pandemic. Yeah, I agree with that. It's totally overwhelming. And maybe mm. for the UK, clearly is much more at the center of the discussion still. But for the economy, I really think that you cannot go to normality if you don't basically lift the lockdowns. And you cannot lift the lockdowns until you have herd immunity. And you cannot have herd immunity until you have enough of a population vaccinated. And we are not yet there in the European Union, unfortunately. No, that's very interesting. As you said, Vittorio, it's very hard to unpick these two things from each other on a part of normalcy. So you talked a little bit about Boris Johnson and his focus on a Canada-like deal around goods. Obviously, trade was central in the future of trade relations between the EU and the UK. In terms of the objectives going into the negotiations and how they ended up, how close do you think that each side achieved their uh, objectives, recognizing that in an ideal negotiation, both sides walk away a little unhappy? From the UK government's point of view, if you look back to when Boris Johnson became prime minister, and it's worth remembering, it, was, it actually wasn't that long ago. I think it's fair to say the UK parliament was in sort of gridlock, very indecisive. It took a general election 
to sort of solve the problem in Parliament in terms of moving forward. But it is the agreement that, broadly speaking, that the UK wanted, you know, the so-called Canada-style agreement that was focused mainly on trade rather than services, zero tariffs, zero quotas, and not being subject to EU law and not having to be a rule taker going forward. So it's broadly achieved those objectives. I would say, however, this is a deal that clearly if both sides wanted to in the future, they wanted to build on it, they wanted to enhance it, perhaps with an element of services in some way, that flexibility exists. There's an ongoing dialogue built into the deal. The deal already is broader than just trade. For example, there was an agreement on mobility. There was an agreement on some security arrangements and things. So it goes beyond, in some elements, what a more traditional trade deal would look like. We've just got this. This is sort of fresh off the printing press, so to speak. And as we've heard, there's still companies that are getting used to the new arrangements. But I think over time, especially in areas like data, maybe certain aspects of services, it's an agreement that can be built on if both sides want to. And the EU's done that before. In trade deals that it's got with Japan or Canada, there's been a gentle sort of evolution of those deals. And I think it will be in the interest of both the UK and the EU as a trading bloc to make sure that that relationship remains positive. Interesting. Victoria, Sajid definitely challenged me there on my assumption that in any negotiation, both sides walk away a little unhappy as it sounds like the UK got broadly what they were looking for. How does the EU currently look at the arrangements that are in place? It's more difficult to assess because this is something that was not clearly initiated, not wanted by the EU. And so there was not an objective at the very beginning. Clearly, it's not just one country. There are many different countries with different sort of idea, potential approach to the issue and different sensibilities. So I think it was more like playing on defense on this, trying to put as least damage within the well-known framework as possible. But I think that at the end, policymakers are reasonably happy with the final results, but probably reasonably happy on the way forward. Because what we have now is breaking up of the relationship as we knew, but we are still uh, far behind in defining what that relationship will be. Sajid rightly said that the European Union had many negotiations over the years on trade agreement and established a relationship with several other countries. But somehow, uh, this is different. We have been so close and we are still so near between uh, continental Europe and UK that the idea that we can redefine those relationships like we have done with Canada and Japan, I think is not a good prospect to me. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Let's talk about some trade relationships with some of the bigger blocks, such as the US and China. Obviously, interplay between the UK and Europe is evolving, as Sajid said. How do you see this affecting the current situation with both China and the US, particularly given the new administration in the United States? Well, I think that this is a, a clear, crucial moment for geopolitical equilibrium, because it would be complex by itself, but when we're coming out, from this pandemic is going to make a difference. And I already see from what we had just said, the trajectory of exit are going to be quite different. China has already had its own trajectory and is well beyond the pandemic issue. The US, I see coming out with a very, very steep gradient. The economy of the US has been damaged less by the pandemic that Europe and the UK, I believe. They I think, going to have a faster and a stronger recovery. And this will uh, clearly change uh, the strategic point of view. Europe, 
as I said, is going to be coming slowly out of it, and this will remain their center of attention. You mentioned new administration, but I don't think there's going to be a new agenda. And we will see with a different diplomatic modality, more of what we have seen up to now, even with the previous administration. Starting with the Obama administration, not just Trump, the relationship between EU and US uh, has been becoming more and more tepid. And uh, this, in my opinion, uh, has opened up a different, maybe not a unitarian strategy because it's very difficult to have a single foreign policy for Europe, but more of a Euro-Asian point of view where Europe is not going to cultivate only the West side relationship with the US, but uh, you see that strategically, especially on a commercial sort of angle, the relationship with China and Asia are going to be very important. Interesting. And Sajid, how do you see this through the lens of the sort of the quote unquote special relationship between the US and the UK with the change in administration, particularly around how we're going to approach trade going forward? I think the special relationship is still there. It's still very special and still very strong. And it's worth keeping in mind that historically, going back decades, it hasn't really depended too much on which party holds the White House or Downing Street, and it's sort of endured beyond personalities. And I think that's still the case. My own view is I think that the change in administration in the US is a good thing for the UK. In fact, I'd go broader and say I think it's a good thing for the world. I agree very much with Vittorio. Despite that change in administration in the US, I I think the attitude, broadly speaking, to China and Russia won't change. And Vittorio is right to sort of think about how that might impact Europe and the UK. The UK's own views on both of those countries are probably closer to where the US is than the EU. So let's take a break for a moment from policy and trade implications and move to sort of the more informal conversations that are happening around dinner tables in both Europe and the UK. And given your backgrounds, we're sure that you sit at the center of many of those discussions. So Sajid, for example, what are people talking about regarding, say, Scotland and its future within Europe and the United Kingdom? We've got local elections coming up across the UK, but Scottish national elections as well. And the Scottish National Party may do better in those. It may not. There's got some issues. But if it does, no doubt it will call for another referendum, not least because they've said they want one. But I certainly don't think another referendum is inevitable. The last time one was held, which was only a few years ago, all sides agreed that it would be a once in a generation to question. I think everyone understands you can't constantly be going to people and saying, do you want to be independent? Yes or no? Yes or no? Keep asking that same question again and again. Personally, I don't expect to see a referendum at all. But that said, the question around Scotland is not going to go away. What you might see is the UK government sort of showing even more forcefully how being in a union benefits everyone concerned, the Scottish, English, Welsh, Northern Ireland, everyone, and trying to sort of highlight those benefits. As far as Brexit (laughs) is concerned, as I said, and as I should say, the pandemic is dominating, but still... I see that the people more concerned in sort of a informal chat are the young people. Maybe even because of a pandemic, they feel like caged in, but even Brexit is a sort of a cage for them because it's undeniable that UK and the US is always represented for the new generation, some sort of a model in terms of culture, in terms of education. And so this idea that all of a sudden it's not part of our sort of home so that I may have trouble in uh, going out and reach out to the UK, they clearly don't like that at all. 
On a broader discussion in Europe, I think that a lot of people believe that since last April, when Europe started marching uh, to me in the right direction and the right speed to face uh, this delicate phase, uh, uh, people are really hopeful that Europe will be able to switch gear economically and politically. The nationalistic, populistic approach to politics that, uh, in my opinion, has made so much damage is possibly on retreat. I think pandemia and its strategy has focused the minds on what really matters and uh, is bringing back people to look at what is true and what is not true. And here is, I think, the moment for Europe that was you know, somehow on a defense mode to go back and show that they can attack by delivering results. And uh, everything clearly is not just uh, the recovery plan, is everything that is all around it and the political will and unity across different countries to do a good job with it and show that Europe has a raison d'etre and matters. Of course, there are a lot of challenges. One is clearly next autumn with German election, a strong Europe, a deep Europe, a more integrated Europe cannot happen without Germany leading it. An era of the era of Chancellor Merkel is coming to an end, and the new equilibrium in Germany is going to be very, very important. Mm. Vittorio, I want to pick up on something that you said that resonates with me personally, and that's the impact of Brexit on younger people. And whether it's in referendums or elections, we're beginning to see this kind of demographic divide in many of the things that are important to people. For me, one of my great personal privileges growing up was that I was a dual U.S. and U.K. national, and as a result, got a huge amount of benefit from the freedom of movement that came along with that. And what really brought this debate home to me is the challenges that are going to arise from the end of the era of mobility between the U.K. and the EU. And far more than me, so many people are going to suffer from the perspective of their family, studies, their work, etc. I mean, how do you see that playing out? And is there a different perspective between younger people in Europe and those in the U.K.? At the younger people level, I think that the sensibilities are the same. I mean, this is a generation where they are used to connect everywhere in the world, you know, clearly technologically, but also physically. And so the idea that there are walls uh, that they never sort of witnessed before, it makes them uncomfortable. However, the sensitivities about European migration uh, are very different between the UK and uh, Europe, part of, uh, you know, is undeniable. And one of the causes of Brexit has been played around uh, movement of people. It's a complicated issue. I think that probably as the new generation will come more and more relevant for decision-making, hopefully things will be going back to a previous mode where mobility is a value and not a threat. So, Jeet, what do you hear from your younger constituents? Is this something that comes up? Yeah, it does. And I think it's fair to say that even before the pandemic, for young people, there were a lot of concerns, really for them, significant challenges throughout Europe, the UK included. The pace of technological change, for example, means that I think younger people are more anxious about the kind of jobs that are out there as they see them changing all the time. They know that no longer... If you compare to older generations, you know, you can get a skill and it will see you through for life, through to retirement. You're going to have to probably keep reskilling. There's higher costs for younger people. And, you know, demographics change throughout Europe to try and meet the cost for the older generation, social care costs and others. And of course, unemployment as well. And in the UK, we were fortunate going into the pandemic, we had near full employment. But in parts of Europe, France, Italy, Spain, Greece particularly, you know, they're very high unemployment, but particularly youth unemployment has been high. And this is all pre-pandemic. And now the pandemic, sadly, has made these challenges even more so. 
and the economic impact we sort of touched on, it's going to take a lot of investment and effort to try and create those opportunities for young people. But that said, I am overall, I'm optimistic about this for both Europe and the UK included. We have some huge assets in our economies, our central banks have still a lot of firepower, our governments are able to use low interest rates to invest in infrastructure, to open up opportunities, to invest in skills. And whilst, yes, there are some big challenges ahead, I feel quite optimistic about this. I think things are going to get better. Terrific. I love that sense of optimism. That concludes part one of our conversation with Sajid and Victoria. Please join us for part two to hear more of their thoughts on how Brexit is impacting the world of finance and may redefine the UK and EU's roles on the global stage. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of J.P. Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.